Byron Tom, thank you for leading us uh, today in those ways. It's a great gift for us to be all together here today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in just a moment. You'll find the text in your notes today. This week, I was uh, just looking through a few articles online, and I, I came across an article uh, by a guy named Tom Rainier. He's the president and CEO of Lifeway, uh, which is a Christian publishing company. And the, the title of the article uh, caught my attention. The title was, 25 Silly Things That Churches Fight Over. And I thought, well, this will be worth about three minutes of my time. I'm, uh, I'm interested. And so I, I scanned through and thought a few about a few things that I've seen in my own experience and saw a few that I hadn't. Uh, um, I saw that apparently churches fight over the length of their pastor's beard. I'm glad that we don't have to worry about that around here. I've, uh, I shaved today, so we should be okay there. Uh, there was a church that reported uh, fighting over the number of filing, uh, fi filing drawers in their filing cabinets, whether or not to have two, three, or four. It, I'm serious. It was a, a real thing. Uh, what, how many numbers of drawers? One of my favorite was there was a church that had a big fight over what to do with the property adjacent to their church building. One camp wanted to put in a playground for the children, and the other camp wanted to put in a cemetery. I'm not really sure how that church conference uh, would, have, uh, would have gone. One struck a little close to home. Uh, the, uh, the, the debate was whether or not the worship leader needed to wear shoes while he was on stage. And <laughs> while I noticed that everybody's got their shoes on, a few weeks back when I came back from vacation, I was getting dressed on this first Sunday back. I had spent 10 days without putting socks and shoes on, and it was great. I grew up on an island, and the only time you put shoes on was to play basketball or soccer. Otherwise, it was flip-flops all the way. And I walked out that morning and had my suit on, and I put on some sandals. And I said, Christy, uh, what do you think? Uh, do, you think this, do you think this will fly today? And she just took one look at me and just said, no, no. Um, <laughs> and so I put my socks and shoes on, and here we go. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's no secret that uh, churches can be places where strange fights occur. Uh, and this is not just in our own context and time, it's throughout history. I don't know if you know this, but some of them have been pretty ridiculous. Uh, King Henry VIII of England uh, started his own church, now known as the Anglican Church, because the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't give him a divorce, and so he was done. That was uh, how he began a split. Uh, there was another serious time, uh, if we look back through church history, uh, Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s, would inadvertently launch Lutheranism uh, because he was discovering the, the centrality of Scripture as the final authority for the life of the believer. And there was a big fight that erupted that we now know of as the Protestant Reformation. That was a serious thing. It wasn't trivial. It was a big deal. There are times in, uh, in church's history, and church's lives, where there are disputes that break out. And, and sometimes, particularly the, the further back we look into history, they can seem more and more obscure and, well, just silly. I don't know if you know this, but the early church fathers uh, in the first few centuries of the church, uh, they argued over when it was appropriate to send the children out of the worship service so that they could be instructed. And I thought that was interesting because 
We argue over when do we have to bring them into the service, uh, and our preschool parents say as long as possible. Let's keep them over there in the preschool side. But no, we welcome children. We're glad, and I'm going to have one coming very soon, just like some of you. We're going to have some new, uh, new fifth, uh, five-year-olds coming to, uh, to join us in big church. Uh, there was, uh, was one dispute that I had never heard of uh, until this week. In the 19th century, there was a big hubbub in uh, the English churches over whether or not the choir should be on the stage or at the back of the room to back up the congregation. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on what I think about, uh, about that, as long as you all back me up today, right? Okay, good, good. No. So there's sometimes we look back and we think it's silly. Well, well today we're going to look at, uh, begin looking at a section in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is, is wading into some of the debates and controversies and wars that were happening in this Corinthian church. We've been going through this letter, and today we open up a section that's all about what happens when the people of God, the church, come together into one space to, well, worship Jesus. And there's going to be lots of different things that come up. Today, the, the particular passage that we're looking at is one of the most controversial and difficult passages to wrestle with in really all of the New Testament. So I'm just setting all of this up to say, we're going to read right now what this particular debate was about, and you're going to think, well, this is just crazy. Well, remember some of those other fights that we looked at, and we're going to be looking for what is this, this particular fight, what does it have to do with, with us? So I just want you to hear uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start in verse 2 and read down to verse 6. Now, I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same thing as having her head shaved. So if a woman's head is not covered, her hair should be cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, she should be covered. Are you tracking with this yet? All right. If it seems a little strange and foreign, it's because it is. Uh, we've got 2,000 years distance from this, and Bible scholars and faithful believers have read this passage for centuries and scratched their heads and gone, what's happening here? Uh, what were they disputing about, and uh, why was it such a big deal about what people had on their heads or didn't have on their heads? Well, this is a fascinating passage, and I'm just going to have to tell you, I don't have time to dive into all of the really interesting things that are here. So I hope at another point we can talk some more about it. But I want you to, to wrestle with the question that I've been wrestling with all week, which is, how is this relevant to us? What does that dispute back there have to do with us today? There are some folks who will read this passage and say, nothing, that this is just a, a cultural matter that was specific to the first century, and there's nothing that really matters to us today. 
There are others who will say that this matters specifically to us today. And there are even churches around the world where if you are a woman in that church, you are expected to wear something on your head, a veil or a scarf or a hat. And there are some people even in our own country who practice this because their conviction is that that's the way to be most faithful to this passage, is that when we come together, women should wear hats. As I look out around here, I see that there's nobody with that conviction in the room right now. And that's okay, that's okay. There is other ways to look at this and say, well, what is it supposed to be teaching us today? That's what we're going to, uh, to wrestle with. Because I do think that, it's, that it is relevant, and it does matter. You know, we, we face a moment here in our own church where we have our own questions about worship that, frankly, they would find confusing and uh, perhaps uh, ridiculous uh, back in the first century. Uh, we, uh, you know, our practice around here is that we worship in three different rooms and three different, if you will, musical languages and one actual language. Now, that approach to a Christian worship gathering is completely foreign to the first century world. And it raises questions for us. I know that for some of y'all who, uh, who are normally in this room, uh, when I preach over there first, uh, the question that you're thinking about by about 11.28 or 11.30 is, is Pastor Josh going to make it over here in time? Uh, I know it. I can see it in your faces when I walk in. And, and so this is a tension that we live in as far as our church is concerned. And it's a question for us as to we look to the future. How do we best honor God, serve one another, and reach our city? Uh, what do we need to do to best utilize the resources that we have? And so uh, we're asking as a leadership team of your staff and also church leaders, we're asking the question, what's, what's the best way forward for us in worship? And we're considering uh, what do we need to do to be best positioned for the future? We're, I don't know if you know yet or not, but we're, we're looking for a new associate pastor for worship and music. We love Tom. He's doing a great job. Uh, but our plan is to have somebody who's here all the time. And so our worship search team is hard at work, and I'm excited about the progress that they're making. And so we're looking to bring somebody new in who will have a, a different kind of a, a skill set and different ideas about what happens in our corporate worship. And so we're going to be learning some new things, as we have been over these past few months already, and uh, beginning to ask the question, Father, where do we go forward? How do we best worship and honor you? How do we best use the resources that God has given us? But we have our own questions, whether or not you think about it. We have our own questions about what happens when we gather together. And so I think that one of the things that we can be looking for over these next few weeks as we examine the Corinthian corporate worship is we can be looking for what values ought to shape our corporate worship gathering. And I think that we can begin to see that even in this very complicated and confusing passage. And that's what I want to begin to show you here today. And then over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a lot of different areas of what happens as we gather together for corporate worship that ought to guide us as we consider the future. Okay, so are you ready? These guys are ready. They heard me. They don't want to get moved to the balcony. Um, they want to stay there. Okay. All right, so, so let's look at what Paul does with this. He's kind of laid out, as best we understand, there's a dispute over whether guys wear hats or gals wear hats, and what are those hats supposed to mean? But then he goes on to lay out his argument for why he thinks they ought to do a particular thing. And it's in that argument that I think we can begin to get some guidance, not just as a church corporately, 
but also individually for how we go about seeking to worship and honor God. So look at verse 7 now. Let me read 7 through the end. A man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And man was not created for woman, but woman for man. I know it sounds offensive in our context. I just know, okay? And I'm not going to try to resolve all of that today. What I'm going to do is point you in just a second to Paul's source of authority. But I know some of you are already thinking, I'm checking out for the rest of the sermon because I can't uh, handle what he just said. Hang on, hang on, because it's going to get crazier before it gets better, okay? Because the next verse is really crazy. Verse 10, this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 11, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. All right. Now, let's dive in a little bit here. I'm not going to try to resolve all of the, the tensions that we hear as modern listeners to uh, this man and woman talk. Now, that's another topic for another story, another day. But I do want you to see that what Paul does in responding to this Corinthian church is he points them to three different sources of authority or guidance. And as he does so, he points us to three different ways to understand God's will about, well, difficult subjects, okay? And that's what we're going to try to look at today. What are the, the three different ways to understand God's will in the face of these difficult subjects? Now, this obviously had caused some sort of tension, uh, um, a rift in this church. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have written about it. And this whole letter is written because of tensions in the church, and there was another pastor, an early pastor, uh, who wrote the book of James. And he wrote about some of those tensions and the sources of them in his letter to another church. And I want you to hear what he says, and then we'll see how this connects with this church in Corinth. James writes in James chapter 4, verse 1, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. Now, remember, James is talking again to a church, to people who claim to follow Christ and want to know how to worship God. And he says that the reason why you've got divisions is because you want something, and you'll do whatever it takes to get there. You want your way. Well, likely what was happening here for the Apostle Paul in Corinth was a similar dynamic. 
there was a new understanding of freedom in Christ and a new understanding of the mutuality between men and women because of what Jesus had done. And some were using that as an opportunity to just do whatever they wanted. But Paul says, no, it's not about what you want. It's not about your will. And there's going to be somebody else's will that you have to consider. Uh, think about it this way. Sometimes in, in my family, I've got uh, three boys, uh, 12 on down to uh, almost five. And one of the favorite things for my boys to do is to get in the living room and take the cushions off the couch and smash into each other. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty epic. Uh, they'll, they'll line up each on one side of the room, and they'll say go, and they'll run at each other and then smash in. Now, you can imagine a 12-year-old and a 5-year-old uh, and who goes flying. So I'll sit in my chair sometimes, and I'll make sure that they're, uh, they're lined up and ready to go. And, and you know what the question is, right? You want, you're wondering, maybe the little guy's going to win this time, uh, right? Um, when, when you see two people square off, you wanna, you're thinking, who's going to win? I'm thinking, well, maybe I can coach Luke and uh, tell him to go low, and he'll knock Zachary over or something. Uh, I, I'm wondering who's going to win. That's how we approach uh, uh, face-offs like this. And then something unexpected happens uh, just about every time that, that we do this. Mom walks in. <laughs> and suddenly, the question changes. The question is no longer who's going to win. The question becomes whose will will win? And we all know the answer, that as soon as mom sees what's going, it's her will that's going to win, and this little uh, standoff is going to come to an end. Well, in a similar kind of way, what the Apostle Paul does is he says, look, uh, you've got these, yourselves lined up on either side of this thing, and you're, you're wanting to see who's going to win this dispute in your church, but you're asking the wrong question. The question that you're asking should not be who will win on any given subject, whether it's uh, when a worship service happens or uh, what style of music happens or uh, whether or not the pastor is going to wear shoes. Uh, these are the, the, su the subject should, or the question should not be who's going to win, but rather whose will wins. That's what the Apostle Paul does here. He changes the question. He points this church not to their own wills and their own desires or preferences about what happens when the community of Christians get together. What he does is he reorients their question and doesn't say who's going to win, but rather whose will wins. And his answer is it's going to be God. In verse 7, he points to God's will as revealed in Scripture. He talks about man as the image and glory of God. He's, he's referring them back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He's rooting this church in the Bible as their source, their final source of, of authority and guidance on all subjects. Now, we might uh, wrestle with what is he saying here, but what we don't have to wonder is where is he pointing them to. And so it, it helps us to know that when we come to questions about what we are going to do, our first place to look is not which side is going to win over the other, but rather, what is God's will on this subject? What's the Bible say? That's the most fundamental question that any follower of Jesus, any Christian, can ask. And so the Apostle Paul points them back to God's word. 
But, but then he points them to the implications of the gospel. If you look down into verse 11, he's, he started in 7 through 9 and through 10 saying, hey, look, if you look at the Bible, the story of, of Genesis, you see this order, hierarchy. There is God and then man and then woman. Regardless of what you think about that right now, that's what he's pointing to. There's this hierarchy, God, man, woman. But then he says, look, but remember, Christ has come. And since Christ has come, the the good news of the gospel is that there is a new order to creation. And so in verse 11 and 12, he says, look, the, the real thinking here is not God, man, woman, but rather remembering that man and woman together only find their place under Jesus. And so there is a mutuality to the relationships between men and women in the context of the church. He's beginning to help them wrestle with this debate and discussion about the different genders and how that works in their church. He points them first to the authority of God's word, And then he points them to the implications of the gospel, the good news that in Jesus, God has fulfilled all the requirements of the law. He has has done everything that is necessary for you and me to rightly approach God and to be in right relationship with one another. The gospel has implications, not just for our relationship vertically, but our relationships horizontally. And one of those implications is that men and women share a a mutual role to build up one another in the body of Christ. And so he says, look, we have these two ways to think about this. And then he points to a third one. It's in here it says, does not even nature itself teach you? What he's pointing to here is not so much nature as in the science uh, around us. It's not the, the view of nature he has in mind. What he's, rather, what he's thinking about is, is the generally accepted practice in his particular cultural context. Uh, this is, by the way, the reason why I don't think you ladies need to worry about not having a hat on right now or a veil. Because in his context, the, 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 the covering that a woman was wearing was most likely a a sign that that woman was married. It was an expression of protection, the the head covering that they were wearing. It was to say they're off limits, uh, that they are to be treated with respect and dignity as uh, one who who is under the protection of another. It was designed to be a symbol to protect them. But in our culture, that's not what we do with hats. It might be what we do with a wedding ring, but even that's not quite the same thing as was happening. And so what we look for is not what do we need to wear on our heads, ladies, or guys, do we just take our hats off when we pray? What we look for is what is he teaching here? Well, I think as we look at the rest of 1 Corinthians, what we understand about Paul is that he understands that context matters. His context mattered. And so does ours. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's already instructed this church to say, hey, look, you need to to not cause offense to those unbelievers who are outside. You need to do what you can to to, to not make it difficult for them to come to faith in Christ. So don't, don't make it hard for them. 
In 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to hear him say, hey, when it comes to your, your preaching and your worship, make sure that things are intelligible for them, for the unbelievers when they come in. That way, when they come in, they'll be convicted of their sin and, and they'll want to come to faith in Christ. We know from those two places that Paul was concerned that this church, the Corinthian church, was aware of its context so that the mission of God could go forward in that city. And so what we are to learn from that is that as we think about our own corporate worship gatherings and, and how we uh, wrestle with what decisions we will make, we also must be concerned with our context. One of our questions has to be, how do we see the good news of Jesus go forward across the city and around the world? How do we flesh out the mission of God that he's given to us? I think that's what Paul's doing here. So he's, he's changing the question. It's not who's going to win in this fight, but rather whose will wins. And says, look to God's will. As he's revealed it in the Bible, as we live it out in the gospel, and as we embody it on mission as his people. This is the, the way to begin to think through, well, all of our issues that we run into. And it's also, by the way, the way that we each ought to be evaluating every church service that we come into. Have you ever had to face the question, how do you choose a church? I assume so because you're all here or watching today, right? You've had some process of evaluation that's gone through your mind. Well, here's, here's what this helps us do. It, it helps us to, to ask a different question than, did I like it? Did it uh, speak to me? Uh, did it make sense and did people look like me? You know, these are often the questions that uh, we think about, me included, as I uh, sit in a worship service or as I go and visit other places, and, and you too. Those are usually the questions that we come to mind. But did you notice that when Paul gave guidance to this church, he never once said, what's your personal preference? What did you like about it? Instead, he gave them three very different ways to evaluate what was happening in a church. The first was, are they teaching the Bible? It's the first question that you ought to consider as you think about this church and what's happening here in any church that God may expose you with in the future. Are they teaching the Bible? Are they unapologetically leaning into God's word and wrestling with what it means today? The second question is, what does the gospel imply for how we live? That was the second guidance that he gave that church. That is to say that if, if Jesus is really Lord and Savior over all of us, if his kingdom is alive and real today, then there ought to be some changes in how we evaluate and how we think. And so is this church, is this people a place where the, the good news of Jesus is being allowed to reshape their lives, transform them? And then lastly, context. Is this church, is these people a people who, are, who care about their community, who want to see the mission of God fulfilled in their city and around the world? And if so, 
If you begin to find those three, uh, those three checkpoints, if you will, to fall into place, then I think you will be looking at a people of God who are learning to be more concerned about God's will than their own. And I happen to think that we are that kind of a place. I, I hope you're experiencing that here. I hope you're experiencing a call to, to look at God's word, to ask, what's the Bible say? I hope you're experiencing the transformation of the, the good news of Jesus. Not just once as these, these children today declared their trust and faith in Christ, but that your life is an ongoing experience of being transformed by the good news of Jesus. And I hope that you, you sense around here the urgency that we are to carry this message of Jesus across the city. We're not here for ourselves. We're here to serve this city so that they too might know the power and the glory of God. That's what I hope you are finding here. And whether or not you've decided to commit yourself here at Columbus Avenue, whether or not you've decided to commit yourself to Jesus, if you're just checking out what Christianity is all about and you just happen to stumble in here today, then I hope that what you will do is reevaluate to, to ask not just what do I like or don't like or what do I want or not want, but rather ask the question, what does God want? What is his will? And what has he said about it in his word? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper around here. And, and don't forget that that question, what does God want, isn't one that we came up with. It's what Jesus himself came up with. Do you remember that night that he was betrayed? That he would pray and so intently praying because he knew the pain and the suffering of the cross and the separation that he would endure from the Father? And in his prayer, he would say, Father, if there is any way for this to not happen this way, then let, let us do it that way. His words were, let this cup pass from me, this cup of suffering. But do you remember how he ended that prayer? But not my will be done, but rather yours. And so today, that's the question that we each have to face. Are you ready to come to a moment and, and perhaps come again to a moment where you say, not my will be done, Father? yours. Because that's not only what the New Testament and this particular passage calls us to think about. It, if you eat and drink of this bread, drink of this cup today, then what you are doing is, is publicly saying, I'm living not for my will anymore, but for the will of God and the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. As we celebrate this, it will be a way that we each communicate, in effect, a renewal of our promise that we made when we were baptized to follow Jesus for the rest of our lives, to ask, what do you want, Jesus? What is your desire for me? I'm going to pray, and then I'll, we'll, we'll serve these elements. And if you are ready to renew that vow to Jesus, 
I'll invite you to, to participate in this with us. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that so often we think much of what we want and little of what you want. Would you change that? Would you just change the question that we ask and the way that we think and evaluate? And, and would you, as, as we try to, to understand what you will, will you change our wills to match yours? We ask that today you'd cause Jesus to be first in our hearts, in our minds, in our priorities, in our decisions. And would you reveal every place where we've put our own will ahead of yours. Lead us to confession, to repentance and change. Be honored now as we remember your sacrifice for us. We remember your prayer, not why will be done, but yours. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.